0: You're listening to Campus Conversations, the Shawnee Community College podcast. Welcome to the Campus Conversations, Shawnee Community College podcast. We are in our new digs here at Shawnee Community College, and we are excited to be talking and actually... Uh, Dr. Taylor has always encouraged listener and and viewer involvement and participation, and we have that this month. I know. I'm excited. We have a couple of questions that uh, some folks had uh, regarding some previous episodes that we did. And today Mm -hmm. we're going to, just as a spoiler of sorts, we're going to be talking about the film industry and kind of the parallels with... It to uh, higher education in Shawnee Community College specifically. Yeah,
1: well, we're really going to link it to the music industry as well yeah. because th- those two kind of changed very similarly in a similar time frame. So um, the the print industry, which we'll do next time, mm-hmm. really started a long time ago. Yeah. That, you know, 1600s <laughs> and print and press and all that good stuff. But I think there's a lot of uh, parallels between the film and the music industry um, and it really kind of mirrors what's happening in the education
0: industry as well. So the very first episode that we did was called Leveraging Future Opportunity, or actually this wasn't the first episode, but it comes from one of those spinoff episodes that we did, Leveraging Future Opportunity, Shawnee Reimagined, and uh, this listener asked, they didn't have a a name associated with their account, but won't a small number of colleges gobble up the online students the same way it is happening with media and other tech-disrupted industries?
1: Um. The answer to that question is yes. And it's already happened. In terms of the universities, and I've talked about it this before Southern New Hampshire, Western Governors, uh, Phoenix, uh, Walden University, Purdue Global, Arizona State, they probably get 75% of the online learners in this country right now, just those five or six. Oh, wow. And so that is happening. Yeah. (laughs) And so. The question becomes is how does the rest of the education industry adapt? Uh, and I think, and maybe this gets into the answer to the other question a little bit as well, but we're not necessarily, well, I would in our strategic plan, what we're not necessarily going for is something that can be delivered entirely online. Mm-hmm. We want to take advantage of the technology but also give people the chance to, who live locally the opportunity to engage in learning on their own time in their own ways. And so, um, I think, you know, we're seeing some shifts also in the online learning market. If you were to Google, I'm going to guess this. All right. So I haven't done it lately, (laughs) but if you were to Google top or largest online university, you'll come up with those names Mm -hmm. I just gave you. Walden, Western governors, um, I think Liberty's a new player into the game. Oh. Strayer is another name that comes up. I think uh, Arizona State, uh, Governor Western Governors. I probably said that those are the largest. If you were to, uh, if you were to actually change your Google search just slightly and ask about online learners, what are the top online learning providers? You're going to get new names that you've never heard of. Oh, edX, Udacity, uh, Pluralsight, Skillshare, FutureLearn hadn't heard any of those. <laughs> LinkedIn so. Learning, Masterclass, oh, wow. Code Academy. Okay, yeah. These are all private. You know, and we've been talking about private mm-hmm. investment in the higher education space because there's a, pro- a profitability there, and obviously there are because there's about 10, 12, 15 new players in this market wow. that's making money mm-hmm. by doing some of the things that I think that we're advocating for in the higher education space.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, this next question comes from someone called The Hook. Uh, they say that tech allows the big fish to eat the market. Walmart perfected its logistics and put out of business many small retail stores. So how can SCC
1: compete with the Walmarts of the college world? Well, if you're looking at trying to compete with Western governors in, in Arizona State, we're just not going to. I mean, mm-hmm. as simple as that. But I think what we have to look at is mirror what works well and then apply that at the local level and and use the technologies there to enhance what we do. And we can provide a much more focused face-to-face customer experience, but in a way in which learners can really access this content 24-7, 365. So that's going to take a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. But I think that's how we do this. And that's what really kind of what our strategic plan is aimed at is trying to get us into that space. We're going to have to practice. You know, if you go back to uh, the conversation we had in the very first podcast, how higher education transforms, we've got to identify where we're at in that change continuum somewhere, Mm -hmm. right? I think what we're looking at are new technologies, their influences, and we're we're in the experimentation stage. So some things are going to work and some things aren't going to work. We're going to need to learn from places like edX, you know, Audacity, Mm -hmm. LinkedIn Learning, and also learn from... Uh, Phoenix, Western Governors. If you look at where the innovation is actually occurring, most of it's in the West. Because gotcha. that's, where the, that's where the need is. Because mm-hmm. remember we talked about the, the migration yeah. south and west, and they don't have the actual space, you know, the, the classroom space that they need to do that. So they, they're forced to experiment. But if we can learn from that and take the Shawnee culture, the, mm-hmm. the, the love of students, the the ability to provide that great face-to-face experience, the ability to, to let learners in the community know, we care about you. You're our friends, you're our family, and we can take that and use those technologies. I think that's where we, we, we differ. And I think there's some evidence of this kind of success. If you look at, like, Amazon, mm-hmm. you got a lot of resellers that sell through Amazon. Sure. Small resellers, and they make money. Yeah. And, and so I think there's hope for us. So, I mean, I don't know that, I wouldn't say there's not hope at all. I think yeah. there is, hope. But, and we've got to figure out what that path looks like. But that's why we got to be experiment now. Yeah, exactly. And now we got to pay attention to what's going on around us so that yeah. we can uh, make those adaptations fast
0: and embracing that change. You know, isn't always a bad thing. <laughs>
1: it's it's the only way we survive. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So again, these were listener and viewer questions. So we encourage you if you uh, have questions. not already. Uh, reach out to us. Let us know. You can reach out to us via our social media channels or, of course, wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, It is on Spotify for podcasters. That's where these questions came in through. But you can email podcast at shawneecc.edu or visit our website uh, and get more information about these episodes and check out our archives as well and go back and listen to some of these conversations that we have started here and then, again, adding your two cents to the talk as well. So, Today, we're talking film industry versus what we had talked about the last time, which was the music industry and and a very rich history and some parallels that kind of run with higher education.
1: Sure. And, you know, I got to start this off by recognizing the talent that really kind of put this together and who we're kind of stealing off of in a way, Uh, (laughs) Dr. Levine Mm -hmm. and his book on upheaval of higher education and uh, Scott Van Pelt. So this is really their work. Um, I'm reiterating it, putting it in a Shawnee ease to some extent, but the the ideas kind of mirrored, like I said previously, it mirrors what I was thinking, but it really clarifies it. So, when I'm not trying to take any credit for this analysis (laughs) other than the fact that I read his book and have done a little bit of research to kind of verify what he said. Yeah, and and kind of, you know,
0: making the adjustments where appropriate for Shawnee College and and our our, uh, Mm -hmm. folks as well here. So get us started and talk all to right, us about so video, uh, film.
1: I think last uh, time we talked about the music industry, we talked about how mm-hmm. the music industry kind of evolved during the second industrial revolution and in the music industry or in the film industry is no different. Um, so the history, <laughs> if you put it side by side how it actually worked within a few years, all of the same technologies, all the same economic influences, all of the same uh, things happened in both industries mm-hmm. uh, almost simultaneously. So, I mean, if you think about the first – you see these pictures. And when the first movie, Cameron, was developed, is developed in Edison – by Edison mm-hmm. in 1890s. I don't remember the date. But Edison had a monopoly. I mean, yeah. he, he was a smart guy. He even bit into light bulb, right? <laughs> but he, he, he did everything he could to monopolize that industry. He patented everything, uh, the movie itself – the filming equipment. Very wise. The, the distribution equipment in the venues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he owned it all. He controlled the whole thing, right? Mm. And so, as you might imagine, over the course of time, people started having some legal battles, you know? Yes. And audiences followed the technology, Uh there's some technology called the kinetoscope. Mm-hmm. And the kinetoscope parlors allowed single person to re, uh, to view strips. You know, if you've seen the old versions of yeah. it on TV, which yeah. is, <laughs> where they're going through and they're looking at just motion pictures. The first motion picture was Edison, and I think he's taking a bow, right? Yeah. It was yeah. like an eight-second yeah. video, on it, which was, you know, shocked everybody. Right, Because sure. it actually moved. You yeah, know? That was the first time it had been seen. But then there parlors, this kinetoscope parlors allowed different little short versions of the film, but there's only one person at a time, right? Yeah. Um, uh, these were found mostly, I think, back in the time at carnivals. You know, you see them in carnivals, circuses, the rise of vaudeville. Yes. Um, and there were some in storefronts. You know, a lot of storefronts attract customers, and they'd have these little kinescope things where you come in, look at them, and then, hey, let's go shop at mm-hmm. the Five and Dime or Ben Franklin or whatever. Yeah. And so those... Um, those were kind of the first. In France, at about the same time, the Lumiere brothers uh, began projecting pictures, though, on a screen. And so they had a device called the... I can't say it very easily. <laughs> somatograph?
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, right.
1: Uh, which it enabled people to watch the same film at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so math, that's when mass viewership started to become the norm. You know, now you just didn't have to sit in a corner and look at this little strip. You can see it with you and me sitting there watching the screen. Yeah. So... By 1905, though, just you know, ten years later, maybe fifteen, um, a permanent motion picture a studio called Nickelodeon mm. <laughs> came open and opened its doors in Pittsburgh. Okay, um, I I thought at first it was in New Jersey, but it was actually Pittsburgh. It was, when I, I, yeah. When I, didn't I looked it up, it was Pittsburgh. And they started offering thirty-minute films, roughly you know, mm-hmm. short films, and um, they also tried to change those films up weekly. So that's why Nickelodeon became popular. New pictures, and at that that's the point in which you started to see all Americans fall in love with the movie industry. Okay. So back in around 1905. Wow. So I think that was pretty cool, um, but over that time, it was advances in technology. You know, from the original scope to the kinetoscope to now we're starting to get into some. Um, different types of technology that allowed films duration to be longer so it went from eight seconds to a couple minutes to now 30 minutes yeah and a little bit longer and so uh, this uh, l- the technology provided the opportunity to create movies of greater length and of course you know people's attention spans at that time were very focused and with the ability to, t- to make the films longer you could tell more complex stories. Mm. And the more complex stories, the more captivated the audience became and the more they fell in love with the industry. And so um, Edison's first film studio, guess where that was? Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was in, in New Jersey. Oh, okay, <laughs> I gave I, I gave I you should have. Right. Yes, <laughs> but it was called it was called. I'm going to say Black Mafia, but no, I think it was Black Maria. Okay, actually. It, it might be Mafia. I can't remember. <laughs> um, but I, as you might imagine, New Jersey's not the most hospitable weather. Yeah, and so the filming of movies year round became a problem. Okay, okay, right. And so there was some geography involved. Yeah. And so at that point, um, there were about thirty different studios, and most of them, or about fifteen of them, moved to South Florida. Edison was one of them. The others all moved to California, Southern California, California where the filming conditions were much better yeah. than New Jersey. Yeah, and definitely, New York. definitely. So by 1910, there were approximately six thousand film studios. Believe it or not. Wow. And all were suing each other <laughs> over <laughs> the content, the technology, and distribution. Wow! So you know, 1910. So basically, 20 years after the inception of the 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 genre of the film. Yeah. You got six thousand entrants into the the market, all vying for uh, consumer yeah loyalty. So, in an attempt to bring order to the chaos, there's a, a group got together, and they formed the Motion Picture Patents Company. And that was created to set quotas (laughs) on the number of films, the links each studio could produce. And initially, of the 6,000, 4,000 signed on. Oh, wow. So they were trying to kind of manipulate the market. Sure. Control the market. The other 2,000, guess what they did? Sued. Yeah. (laughs) And they won an antitrust suit in uh, 1912. So uh, as you can imagine... Once that smoke cleared, it was in the early 20s, basically five wealthy film companies emerged. 20th Century Fox, mm. we've all heard of, MGM, okay. uh, Paramount, yep. Warner Brothers, and what was known as Radio Keith orthium but we know it as R-K-O. RKO. I knew RKO. I did not know what it stood for, though. That's interesting. Uh, see? A little bit of research can do wonders. <laughs> yes. So RKO, those were the five majors. Um, there were also three minor, well, what I would call minors, but were, I think they were actually referred to as the little three, mm. and that was Columbia, mm-hmm. Columbia Pictures, United Artists, and Universal. Oh, okay. So okay. all those names yeah. <laughs> you still know today. Yeah, right? absolutely. So these eight controlled the production, distribution. Um, they owned the theaters. Um, they owned the talent. Yeah, I, re- I can remember <laughs> hearing the stories
0: of how, you know, when you were locked in, you were kind of uh, X amount of pictures and you couldn't yeah. go and fraternize with the other studios or anything like that. So. so
1: eight studios owned the actors, the directors, wow, the writers, basically every person in front and behind the camera. So they controlled it all. Yeah, The majors owned the theater chains, right? So where they were playing... So they had firm control over everything, something the music industry really never had. Right, right. right. So the, the, the film industry had a major stranglehold on it, yeah. everything. Um, the majors controlled 17% of the movie theaters that were attended by 45%. Of the, So the majors, the five majors, mm-hmm. owns, owned 45% of the viewership. Wow. <laughs> so independent theaters were required uh, to block book movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what that meant is when you blocked book a movie is you had to rent large packages of films for the entire year. You had to show two a week or 104 a year, right? And the list that they bought considered uh, were made up of what they called A-list movies, you know, mm-hmm. major motion pictures sure. and B-list. That's where that B-list okay. uh, idea came up. Uh, so, but they had to do it sight unseen. So okay. if you owned a theater, they say, Kevin, if you want to do business, you're going to have to buy 104 movies from us, and of those 104 movies, we're going to give you 40 a-list movies, and you're going to show these B-list movies too. Mm. And you had to do it, <laughs> so you didn't have a choice as a business owner. Wow! That's what you did if you wanted to make money. Yeah. Right. So, what this did, though, for the mu- or for the film industry, is it created guaranteed profit for their B-list movies because people were coming to the theaters; they didn't have anywhere else to go. Right at mm-hmm. the time. And they watched these movies, whatever was playing. And so when they went to the movies, they watched the A-list movie that was playing or the B-list movie. Or sometimes it was both, you know, where they had the matinees yeah. and things like that. But the, by doing that, it really reduced the financial risk for the movie industry, mm-hmm. the owners. You sure. know, so the majors. And, the, you know, the three little ones as well. So these majors became powerful. And sometimes they'd make the... In fact... The majors made the public wait for years to integrate talkies.
0: Okay, so these are this is still the silent film era.
1: Yeah. So yeah. So they the the technology was there, but they didn't want to do it okay. right away. Wow. And so they made the public wait years before the sound became a normal part of what we do. The independent studios is what created the 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 market for it. And when they started making money or taking away from the profits from the majors, they like, oh, okay, now it's time. Yeah. So, again, the majors mitigated mitigated their risk. They didn't jump into the new technology right away, mm. kind of like the record industry. Yeah. They didn't jump into rock and roll right away. Right, right. They let some other minor labels take it and make it popular. And then when they did, boom, in came RCA. Here, in, boom, in comes MGM and Bram So it's kind of cool how it kind of mirrors that. And from so basically, from the late 20s to 1948, uh, I think it's commonly referred to as the golden age Mm -hmm. uh, of Hollywood. But this is one of the few low cost uh, pleasures that um, people had, especially during the Depression. What else could you do? Sure. Go to the movies, and they were, you know, cheap, nickel. Yeah. (laughs) Nickelodeon. (laughs) Well, cheap. Yeah. Even by our standards today, but it was probably. Fairly
0: yeah. A nice expi- night out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was it was spent your weekly budget, <laughs> probably. But in 1948, guess what happened? Another lawsuit, right? Antitrust mm, case. Yes. Guess who brought this one? Any thoughts? 48, roughly. It'll make sense to you. When I know. Happened.
0: I know. As soon as you say it, it's going to make sense. I don't know. Walt. Disney, Disney. <laughs> of course, of course. Okay,
1: this is funny. Though. Walt Disney brought the suit, and so that they could. They were really looking for the majors to give up ownership of the theaters. Okay. So they were trying to break this, break up that solid monopoly they have from creation, distribution. To, they wanted to get into the theater piece, and so yeah. uh, the court blocked these practices. The court also ruled on block. Booking mm-hmm. said that that was antitrust as well. So they, okay. they couldn't do that practice anymore. And blind bidding, which was also a practice that I didn't talk much about, but that was also part of that antitrust suit. So the consequence of this ruling was pretty dramatic, though, because studio profits were reduced. Now they couldn't do the be less guaranteed profit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't force a studio to play their movies. And so studios became more... Um, free to go out and work with other movie providers to provide different kinds of movies for their audiences. And so they were no longer owned by, you know, Paramount Engine and okay. so on. So they they could do those things. So the profits for studios started to be reduced. Uh, guaranteed profit for B-List was not there anymore. So okay. now they had to think twice when they were trying to innovate. Yeah, Right? They, yeah, It became much more riskier. And so um, a lot of these things, the three, what the, the little three and some of the up and coming companies now became more pop, powerful and popular. Uh, Theaters chains also has a stronger bargaining position. No longer, uh, I've got an audience of, uh, you know, a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand. You're going to give me better prices than that theater down the street that only has an audience of five hundred. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they, they then became more. Uh, in a more competitive bargaining position for the the, which means the prices probably went a little (laughs) bit more to the studio but the other thing that happened is the actors and the studio professionals uh, which were previously owned by the studio now could create their own content okay and so that was also a big part of that so independent production companies started really popping up again you know so it started off with just Edison and went to six thousand. They went back down to eight, and it's now it's back up and and when this lawsuit came again, the independent companies start popping up again. So I think it's important to understand, you know, given how the laws work, you're going to see that ebb of flow mm-hmm. within businesses where you have a you know a lot mm-hmm. something's going to happen that triggers it, probably technology or some sort of a antitrust suit, and then it's going to back back up, and yeah. and, and that's what we've seen in kind of. We're seeing, and I'll we'll get to it in a minute, in the film industry today. Yeah. So you get through 48, and then in the 50s, guess what happened? TV. TV. The Ed Sullivan show, right? Yes. Uh, so television revolutionized the home entertainment piece, uh, just as radio had did for music industry. Uh, as with radio, initially the content was free, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you tuned into. The initial problems, I guess, were the same for both the music and the film industry. Uh, still a high cost per unit. It was low quality. You know, TVs were high cost at the time. Low quality. The technology was kind of finicky. You had to adjust the rabbit ears and maybe hold drama up. And, <laughs> yes. <for> some, <laughs> and there was not a lot of programming to begin with. Right. But, you know, however, adoption went pretty quick in the 50s, you know, because people didn't have to go to the theaters. You could watch it at home. Yeah. And get some. I think the news was really huge. You mm-hmm. know, being able to see the news and weather and things like that. And so that really started, that created a, a higher demand for the technology, The tech, higher demand for the technology, meant more profitability for the p- places like Zenith and RCA mm-hmm. that built TVs and things like that. So they started building them better and cheaper, and then, then it became more widely adopted. Yeah. And so I think by 1955, um, my notes say that it went from about $5 million into 50s. 31 million viewers. Oh wow! In just five short years. And wow. So that's how quickly the technology yeah. adapted. Yeah. So the 50s were for the film industry was a time of experimentation, uh, the negotiation, trial and error. Uh, they were, initially saw the television industry as a as a threat uh, because they, they were bringing the content. Uh, so, but. At some point there was a recognition that we can use the tv industry for good mm-hmm. and so then the movie these companies started working with the tv to provide content so you start to see shows like the lucy show mm-hmm. and Gunsmoke, and you know a lot of the pre-60s mm-hmm. types of series and so the idea of creating content for tv is something that was embraced by the film industry where the music industry didn't do that right away yeah. so I, I think there was a little bit of a difference there but this so, really, in a sense, the TV industry became a, a partner with the film industry. Okay. Whereas in the music industry, radio wasn't seen as a, a real partner until near
0: the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. And
1: so, so, this new normal within the film industry lasted till about 1975. But, guess what happened? 75. Mm. Now, I know you're old enough for this. Yeah,
0: yeah. I don't
1: know. All right. So what we've <laughs> learned historically, right, is there's some sort of influence from either technology, mm-hmm. geography, or law, legal. This one happened to be technology. New technology in 1975
0: was Betamax. Okay. Yes,
1: of course. <laughs> so the first video cassette recorder came out. In, and um Obviously, you know if you look over to the music industry, they had the eight track in yeah. seventy five, and the cassette came out a little bit later. So the prospect of recordable media, yeah, now in the film industry, uh, provided a, a change, sure. a, a, an impetus to change. And uh, of course, litigation. Yeah, started.
0: <laughs> you, you can't move <laughs> forward without that.
1: But guess who brought it?
0: Oh. Got to be the uh, industry. The the Disney,
1: Disney brought it again. Uh, No, Disney again. (laughs) Now they were on the side of. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So Disney brought and Universal claimed that the recording device could only be used to infringe on their rights. Mm. And, uh, of course, the Supreme Court disagreed with that and said that there was fair use involved in that. So by 1984, when the Supreme Court, because, you know, got with these all the lower yeah. levels of courts, federal courts, appeals courts, and so on. By the time the Supreme Court weighed in on it in 1984, uh, the technology had already evolved. Yeah, Beta, Beta was gone. VHS was in. Yeah, uh, We were starting to see the... Um, the implementation of video disc at that mm-hmm. time. Um, and so the second generation of video recorders was much, much better and re- and they were done much cheaper. The reason Betama- Betamax, in my opinion, in many people's opinion, was a superior technology. Yeah. But it was expensive. Right. VHS made it cheap. Yeah. And widely available and became the standard mm-hmm. because of that. So that's, something, that's a lesson to be learned. If, if you can do it, if you can give the consumers what they want in a cost-effective manner, then they're going to, even if there's a better right way to do it, they're going to go to the cost-effective manner as long as it accomplishes their goals, right? Yeah,
0: and I can tell you from the TV side of things in, in the news industry, when I first got in, they like to do a lot of the uh, recordings on beta, Versus, you know, the we called them super VHS at the first place that I worked, but yeah, it, it's it is, it, you know, the Betamax was definitely better quality, but like you said, much cheaper for the VHS to, to roll into place.
1: The subtlety in this, which is often missed, is and, I, and I'm going to point it out here because it's important when the video cassette came out, the DVD, the recordable media that shifted control of the content to the consumer. Mm-hmm. not No longer did the movie industry have ability to dictate when the consumer looked at it. The yeah. consumer now has control. That control is what the consumers want. They want to be able to choose. Yeah, And so that's important for us to learn from. We right. all have to have our content in a way where you know, people can choose. Yeah. And, and in the, the, the more businesses that are able to do that and provide that content in a way that people can choose, obviously, that's going to make the other companies obsolete. Yeah, yeah, So, absolutely. So within 40 years, from uh, 85 back to 45, mm-hmm. right? Um, control moved from the studios to the theaters, from the theaters to the television, and from the television to the consumers. Yeah. 40 years. 40 years. And that's... You know, that's a scale with analog technology. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's something that we should be aware of as well. So then, you know, with these video cassette recorders, um, it created the opportunity for new businesses to merge. Uh, this was kind of an adaptation so mm-hmm. we're looking at ad- and some of these adaptations were pretty lucrative. Um, VCR, DVD rental right? mm-hmm. sure. in 1990, home video generated revenue in 1990, home video generated more revenue than the movies did. okay right So renting stuff yeah and watching it at home yeah was more profitable and larger than going to the movies in 1990. Um, video rental stores emerged. You know, I think Blockbuster Video is the one we all remember. Sure, uh, They were launched in 85. Okay. Um, at its peak in 2002, it had nearly 10,000 storefronts. Wow. And is valued valued uh, financially at about $5 billion. Hmm. <laughs> They're bankrupt 10 years later. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> crazy. So what this video industry did is it gave consumers the opportunity to view new releases because you get new releases yeah and old favorites all you know you that family movie night in your home when you wanted to view them you could view them over and over again you could start and stop go to restroom not miss anything you could go get a beverage you know whatever and you had control consumers yeah. had control the rental concept also gave rise to some new revenue streams. At first, Blockbuster made a bunch of money off of late fees, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> $800 million in 2000 alone. Wow. Late fees. That was 16% of their gross revenue is late, late fees. That's, <laughs> wow. Now, now, here's the thing, though, about late fees. Did you like to pay a late fee? No, of course not. I didn't either. And there, and I worked, actually, in Stars and Stripes video in Carbondale uh, one summer because I Needed the money. Yeah, sure. And I would get into arguments with people about late fees all the time. And a lot of times, you know, we just end up waiving them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, people, consumers didn't like late fees. They wanted the technology, but they didn't want to pay late fees. So Netflix initially entered the market. What was their spiel? You can rent any DVD. We'll mail it to you. (laughs) And you mail it back to us whenever you're done. (laughs) No late fees, right?
0: Yeah. It's such an interesting concept.
1: And so that was their Netflix's initial entry into the market. Yeah, I would say that if they didn't had dipped their business model, they would have been gone. Oh yeah. Um, incidentally, um, I read something back in the, in that time frame. I can't remember exactly when it was, but there was a time when the CEO of Blockbuster, his name was John Anticoco or something like that. He had the opportunity to buy Netflix for fifty million dollars, oh. not billion. Fifty million dollars, and he passed. And you know wow. why he passed? He said the model's not significantly yeah. different, other than the late fees, which we're making sixteen percent on our money. Yeah, it's no different. Yeah, they're just you know sending out movies. So he passed on it. Big mistake. Big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> could not see the future, right? No, nope. no.
0: Nope.
1: So digital disruption happened then in two thousand seven, and Netflix transformed their business model and started using streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, streaming services. Uh, just a few short years right after the music industry. And the reason they didn't probably jump in at the time of the music industry is the bandwidth at the home wasn't enough, you know, yeah. because you had the dial-up modems they were too slow for streaming. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, digital infrastructure wasn't in place in, within the homes and then within the city structure where that could flourish. But it was by 2007, it was. And at that time, less than half the households had broadband connections but once high speed internet uh, access started to boom, the barrier that kept Netflix from totally displacing Blockbuster was removed. And Blockbuster didn't last but a couple of years after that. Yeah. So again, Blockbuster failed to realize the consumer desires of wanting streaming 24 7, 365 yeah. in a model that is affordable and didn't include things that they didn't like. Mm-hmm. And didn't use the new technology. They didn't try to. They were store front heavy. They were infrastructure heavy, and that started. They didn't have the same infrastructure uh, limitations that or Netflix didn't have the same infrastructure limitations that Bar- Blockbuster had. So their profits were hugely different, mm-hmm. and so the investors all migrated towards the Netflix model and left Blockbuster broken, yeah. out of business. Wow. You know in nineteen. 19- or excuse me, in 2020, Netflix had over uh, 100 million subscribers and earned over 5.4 billion. I think if you look today, um, they're about the same subscribers, maybe a little less. Their profits are a lot different because guess what Netflix did?
0: I know they've, they're starting to produce their own content as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah.
1: They're kind of going back to the old mm-hmm. way of doing business. Now they're trying to create their own content. Now, what made Netflix different than Blockbuster is Blockbuster and uh, was only given movies that the movie industry produced, but now Netflix is producing their own. They mm-hmm. started having things like uh, um, what was the most recent? Well, they've had Stranger Things. That was the yeah. one I was thinking of. Stranger Things, and uh, what was the one with Kevin Spacey and? Oh, uh, House of Game Cards. Of, or, yeah, Game House, of Thrones. Or no, yeah, House of Cards. Yeah. Um, that, a Kingdom of God, things like that. Uh, the Viking, I mean, they've got, I mean, several different series. Yeah. Like they're creating this unique to Netflix. And so they're giving uh, consumers a different experience. Yeah. And so they're creating different models of learning. So, But as you might imagine, the, the tension now between Hollywood and streaming services are starting to be reminiscent of the film industry in the 50s. Uh, the difference, I think, is the 50s, the film industry had a path forward they couldn't, they couldn't control the distribution, but at least they could control the content. Mm-hmm. Now, they can't control the distribution, and they're, th- there's a threat to their content. You're starting to see, you know, their own... I mean, if you look closely at a lot of the movies that come out, there's a lot of stars that are producers, mm-hmm. executive mm-hmm. producers, directors. Yeah, They're starting to get in and build their own movies and yeah. content. and So that's taken away from MGM so things like that. So so today, though, Netflix isn't the only streaming business. Right, right. Um, And they're not the only one producing content. Um, Hollywood, though, continues to play it safe. They're doing superhero movies, sequels, and reboots. Yeah. Netflix is doing things like House of Cards and Stranger Things. Uh, Traditional Hollywood studios consider a number of factors before they release a movie, mass appeal, box office revenues, etc. Because they are... Uh, Infrastructure heavy. Netflix, they don't care. If House of Cards fails, small investment. Mm -hmm. The next one was going (laughs) to hit. So they're more agile. uh, They're providing services that uh, consumers want. Sometimes they don't want them. You get hooked into a series of Netflix. You don't see a second season. You know, and then stream. Yeah. You know. So, um, but there are other providers. I mean, Amazon got into the business Mm -hmm. because they saw the profit. You see Hulu, Sling services now uh, was it Fubo Fubo, yep mm-hmm. Philo, Disney Plus yep they're all streaming even the major labels or what used to be ABC, NBC yeah I mean NBC's got Peacock I think it's Peacock. It is, yep. And Paramount Plus is CBS. Mm-hmm, yep. ABC hasn't come up with something creative yet. I'm, I'm, I'm
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised by that. I know they probably <laughs> piggyback some of it with Disney Plus, but yeah, yeah. I, I'm surprised they haven't developed that. Uh, I'm sure
1: they'll come up with something, especially with the uh, way football is going to mm-hmm. morph into two powerful conferences. Yeah. Um, and then you got Roku devices, Fire devices, Apple Plus. You know, this mod, this streaming models. You're yeah. starting to see a proliferation of new innovation within, and then some of these are going to come up with something new. Mm-hmm. It's going to shift the industry yeah. again. So, you know, in summary, I think, I think you can see a lot of parallels between the music industry and the yes, film industry. Absolutely, the shift in control, especially the shift from the, the, the studio to the consumer. I think that's really important. And once the consumer's got access to 24 seven, three sixty five, that model rules. Yeah. It's so always going to yeah in, the, in free market.
0: Well, and you put it in their hands like that, and you know, like you said, they they are in control, and so they've been able to do that with their music. They've been able to do that with the TV and the and the movies that they watch. So it you know only makes sense that other industries are going to be impacted by like by this, like the education industry.
1: You know, I think <clears throat> some of the mass appeal of Netflix, Hulu, others is they have this wide library of content mm-hmm. um, you can get almost any movie you want available to you 24 7 365 that mass that that big library of content is what we think we need to be doing or what i think we need to be doing as mm-hmm. an education industry we need to be creating a wide variety of content that people can choose mm-hmm. when they want it and how they want to access it that's kind of why our strategic plan is is wrote the way it is so we can experiment and try to find that magic way to create that content. Has
0: anyone done that yet?
1: You're going to see some breakthroughs, I think, probably in the next five years. Mm -hmm. For sure, in the next 10. Some of the things that we're doing in in Illinois is we're experimenting with this competency-based learning. Part of taking this competency-based learning and what we're calling unbundling the credit hour is creating modules of smaller content. So instead of three-credit course, 45 hours, we're taking 10, 15 hours of content, making it a module. Mm -hmm. And so students can then start to build what they need. If we can be creative about our approach as a community college system and start to designate maybe like a repository, Mm -hmm. something where... We say, you know, Shawnee, you're responsible for developing welding curriculum. You develop all welding curriculum, any welding curriculum. And and that's probably too big. It Mm -hmm. probably needs to be much smaller. But we want you to develop the outcomes. We want you to develop learning plans, teaching plans, video content, support materials, and continuously do that. Now, if we put that into a repository where everybody in the state could access that, Mm -hmm. then John A. might be able to develop um machine tool Mm -hmm. and then they're developing all the machine tool technology content and sharing it and and if I needed a machine tool course (coughs) I could go to this repository and I could pick out the pieces I need for the industries we serve here in Shawnee okay and so I think that's the kind of thing that we were looking at and need to create throughout the state we got 48 community colleges We've already got a model uh, of success of collaboration with the iGen
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we're sharing sustainable um, curriculum, where we're uh, grant writing so that we can transform our campuses into sustainable models. And so there's that. And we, and as Shawnee, we pay a subscription every year to belong to iGen, and then we get free content. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of things available to us that wouldn't otherwise be available. More than outweighs our subscription fee. If we could do the same kind of thing with curriculum, and we could create a universe of all curriculum Mm -hmm. for all degrees that we have within the state that would apply to a job, and I could log into this repository, and if I needed some battery technology training for EEI down there, I only probably need a couple of modules. I could just download it and then implement it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the 24, seven, 365 access. And I didn't have to create it. I didn't have to spend $20,000, 100000 to create it. Mm-hmm. It's already there. And somebody, if Kyle develops some underwater welding pieces, mm-hmm. um, if somebody up in uh, Peoria decides they wanna do something because they're working on a barge in, in the lake, they download what Kyle's created and create it specifically for them. So that gives mm-hmm. us a lot of flexibility. We can do that. It's kind of like that Amazon model mm-hmm. right now, where we got a bunch of little resellers providing content through a larger means.
0: So, do you think the you, you know you mentioned Illinois and the 48 uh, community colleges here is this a is this going to be an initiative that some state or some collaborative is going to have to take the the lead on, and then others around the country are going to pick up on it, or is this stuff I think so.
1: I mean, I think that's how the innovation will happen. <clears throat> It'll be a model. It may be a business model, though. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm afraid of. If, like, edX or Audacity or, you know, even Con Learning decide to get together and form this consortium, mm-hmm. right now it seems like they can do it better than we can, mm-hmm. at least in some elements. The, the Code Academy stuff's really good. Mm-hmm. And so um, if the higher ed can get there, I think we would be better because our teachers – know how to create instructional uh, outcomes. Or know how to create instructional courses. They know how they know the theory behind learning so that it's good. If we can get there, then you, you might see some collaboration and that's probably most likely between like a state system and a private
0: entity. As these changes get implemented and, and start going into place, What do parents and and students and future students and even our faculty and staff here now, what should they be aware of? What should they be looking out for and what do they need to know?
1: Well, I think that the answer kind of differs depending on the audience and and so forth. But I think it starts with us here Mm -hmm. at the college. And I think our major challenge right now is to recognize that we've had past successes with the model of delivery that we've had, the face-to-face model. But looking at the demographics of the late millennials and their Generation Z students and just general consumer behavior, we have to kind of recognize the fact that maybe this model of learning isn't gonna work for everybody. And the evidence supporting that is the rise of these learning online providers that are not education related, right? Uh, the EdX, the audacities, the Khan Academy—I mean, LinkedIn Learning—they're all making money mm-hmm. for this, <clears throat> and people—and they're making money because people are taking these courses. Code Academy, it's another one. And we talked a lot about jobs in previous podcasts, mm-hmm. the evolution of the workplace, and how technology is de- place- displacing different types of workers. Yeah, and you know the. the the need to retool and reskill as new technologies enter the workplace, like AI, mm-hmm. VR, and so <clears throat> I think our employees have to understand that the golden age of education may be about to change. Mm-hmm. And if we're not ready to adapt, then I don't know where we end up. Yeah, um, I can speculate, but I think we need to be ready to adapt. So we need to embrace where we are within the change or or that change curve meaning that we have to experiment. We have to try new things. We have to learn from what works and what doesn't, but we can't run from the technology. Yeah. Now when we do that, that means we're going to have to come up with different policies, different ideas, different ways to work, different ways to interact with the community mm-hmm. and the students. <clears throat> and that's important. We need to do that. Right now, having students come to us, yeah, and tell us what they want to take. Maybe and then they change a couple of days later or uh, n- the next semester later. They didn't like this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know that's a waste of the students' energy, effort, and money. So we need to be able to figure out a way to engage with the students, <clears throat> provide them with opportunities to explore and make choices that doesn't necessarily cost them two years or yeah two thousand dollars or five hundred dollars or whatever it is. So we 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 got to do that and we got to experiment. If you're the community. You want to, I hope you can look at this vision and embrace it and help us. Yeah, we need the community's help. Tell us what you like about it, what you don't. Be patient with us as we learn. We're going to try some things that's not going to work well. It's not that we don't love you anymore, it's mm-hmm. just that we're trying to adapt to your needs and right, to, you know, be, help us. You know, these things work for us, these things didn't. You know, one of the things that we're going to do in a couple of weeks is we're going out to the community and we're going to ask what do you want from us? Yeah. What do you want from us in terms of facilities? What do you want from us from us in terms of programming? So we really do care about what the community says, but <clears throat> we're not probably going to hit the mark exactly, right? Sure. For the first time, we're going to learn and we're going to see what, you know, Johnny's doing. SIC is doing. They're probably going to be doing some good cool stuff too mm-hmm. up the road in Juliet and in Peoria, ICC. I mean, they're all going to be doing some things that's going to work, and we're going to say, hey, how can we adapt that model? Mm-hmm. Does that work for our population? So for the community, be patient. Yeah. Um, help us work. Um, if you're an employer, that's the people that we're trying to really serve as well. Yeah. In, in many ways, and this isn't going to be popular, the employers are our primary customer. hmm Students are a product to them. Yeah, right. Makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, you know. But if you go tell anybody you now, I'm not doing it publicly. the yeah, <laughs> yeah. podcast. But if you went, if I were to go in a room and say, students are not our primary customer, you know, you're going to get laughed out of the room. Somebody's going to be calling the board saying, why you hire this guy as president? Yeah. But the reality is, we are preparing students for jobs. Yeah. And the benefactor of the us preparing them for their jobs is they can change their lives and lifestyle. But we're actually preparing workers for the industry. And so the workforce needs to embrace this model and tell us what they need, right. what they see coming in their industry so that we can at least anticipate to a certain degree how we need to adapt our learning models to meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Because if we're not meeting their needs, I can do the best job I can training a student. And if it's an outdated technology, what good do we really do? Yeah, I mean, even if we talk, you know, Python is a big... Uh, <clears throat> Coding languages, coding language behind AI. And it's probably emerged, I'm gonna say in the last I'm gonna say the last decade, it's probably been less than that, probably five years. There are probably a new coding language that's gonna come out. Mm. And it's gonna be better. You know, But if I've trained a student for Python and this new language comes out, what good do we do that student if the industry's not using it? So right. we have to be able to adapt to anticipate what the industry needs. Because you can't create curriculum overnight. You can't mm-hmm. create these learning experiences overnight, at least right now. And there yeah. may be some technology that comes forward in the future where they can take what you're thinking in your brain and transform it into a, a picture and stuff. I mean, that's all sci-fi stuff now, but it's maybe probable in the future. But until that stuff exists, we take, we take minutes, more than minutes, to create curriculum usually. Yeah, And especially if we want to customize that curriculum to a particular industry. And so we just need a little bit of lean time, but they need to help us. They need to be part of our advisory committees. They need to come to these community events sure. and say, this is what we see coming in our auto industry. This is what we see coming in the healthcare industry. This is what we see coming in our um, agricultural industry. And then we can have the opportunity to say, all right, let's 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 see if we can work this out and help us test it. Yeah, Does this work? What needs to change? You know, just like any other design concept that – you always have some sort of a prototype build that you pilot, and then you adapt about 80% uh, when it's developed, and then you keep perfecting it until, it's perfect, until it changes again, right? So we, we need those that kind of help from the industry.
0: I think the big lesson uh, kind of walking out of this and, and kind of tongue in cheek, but also a serious consideration is be more like Netflix and not Blockbuster, you know, and, and miss Absolutely. out on those opportunities to evolve and to change because Netflix could have very well ended up the same way Blockbuster did. But Absolutely. they didn't. They they focused, they kept their eye on the prize, and they
1: adapted. Yeah, and they're trying to now. I mean, they're looking at all this competition and they're thinking, what can we do differently? Yeah. What can we do that consumers want? How can we provide this product in a way that's better than the, our, our, our competitors? At least the higher education system although we're competitive, we're not hyper-competitive like a business Mm would be. A lot of times we partner and work together. That's why we we have consortiums that work on grants. And that's why we're in this consortium for welding curriculum, because we decided to work together Mm -hmm. and and try to do that. So there's hope, there's a lot of hope, but we've got to do stuff. It's no longer (laughs) able to sit and wait because the rapid rate in which the community will adapt and the technology will adapt Will eventually uh, outpace us out of the market if we don't do stuff. Absolutely.
0: Very well said. If you have questions or concerns, uh, want to have a uh, counterpoint, if you will, to what Dr. Taylor has said today, be sure to, again, email us podcast at ShawneeCC.edu. You can also check us out on social media, head to our website, uh, send us an email through our website as well. And again, we will address those questions right here anytime. Dr. Taylor, anything else you want
1: to add this time? No, I mean, if somebody wants to challenge and and provide hope that this model that we've had over the last 100 years can sustain, please do, because I love the model. Yeah. I mean, it's romantic. It's awesome. You know, it's what we all kind of come to do. But I just provide me with some hope that it can sustain. I don't have it, honestly. Uh,
0: Very well said. Again, thank you so much for checking out Campus Conversations, the Shawnee Community College Podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for being a part of Campus Conversations. Be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. And if you have questions or concerns, contact us at shawneecc.edu.